Please turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We'll look this morning at verses 1 through 10. The title of our sermon is The Faith of a Centurion. And our key words for our worshipers and training are centurion, faith, and trust. Now, I I wonder if you've ever met someone with so much uh, faith in someone or something that you are simply left amazed at how much assurance they have. Sometimes we're amazed at how much confidence in something uh, someone has um, that we recognize as being blatantly false, like Muslim suicide bombers that blow themselves up in the hope that upon their death they will be ushered into heaven and given a harem of virgin women to do with as they please. Other times we're amazed at what people don't believe even though substantial objective support can be provided to the contrary, like those, for example, who deny the existence of the Nazi Holocaust. Perhaps there's even some here this morning who are simply astonished that Christian people have faith in a triune God who manifests himself in the flesh as Jesus Christ, born of a young virgin girl, placed in her womb by the Holy Spirit, living a life of perfection with the intention of dying on a wooden cross as a means to provide atonement for the sins of his people. Many simply find that unbelievable. Perhaps we're the crazy ones to believe that which is quite unbelievable to the world. And if that's you this morning who doubts the claims of Christianity, I'm glad you're here and I will tell you that you're not alone. Many men and women throughout history have doubted Christianity only to find that there really is an overwhelming amount of evidence that supports the reliability and the truthfulness of the Scriptures and all that it claims. One such man was the very well-known C.S. Lewis. And one of C.S. Lewis's best friends was J.R.R. Tolkien, who is most notable for writing the series on the Lord of the Rings. Lewis and Tolkien would meet together regularly, and they had many conversations about the Bible and about Christian faith. One evening, it is said, they went on a late uh, walk. And Lewis was expressing to Tolkien his belief that all myths are ultimately lies and therefore unbelievable. And Tolkien submitted to Lewis that Christianity certainly was a myth, but explained to Lewis that the story of Christ was the true myth, the very heart of history and at the very root of all reality. He said, uh, the, the pagan myths were sometimes revealing uh, the minds of poets and maybe even small fragments of truth. But the true myth of Christ, the manifestation of God expressing himself through himself, with himself, in himself, as himself, 
God in the incarnation had revealed himself as the ultimate poet who was creating reality, the true poem in his own image. And a few days after this late night conversation, Lewis still pondering all they had discussed, got into the sidecar of a motorcycle for a trip to the zoo, and he later wrote, When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. He moved from skepticism to, in the words of the Bible, assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. You know, I'm amazed when I hear all of the different ways that God brings people to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's always all the more revealing to me that faith isn't something we simply conjure up inside of us and exercise at will, but rather what the Apostle Paul calls a gift of God. I love to hear stories of people's conversion, how God rescues his people from a life of sin to a life of righteousness and godliness and a desire for holiness. It's amazing how many different ways God does that work. And it's amazing to see the results of a new creation in Christ, walking faithfully with the Lord, and the amount of trust that is developed, the great faith that arises as one continues to persevere. You know, there's many of you in here today that there's people in your past that would be shocked to know that you're actually sitting in a church today, let alone that you are a faithful believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Some of you have opportunity to share that reality with those people who might be shocked. But while we may marvel at someone's faith for any number of reasons, whether it's legitimate faith or completely irrational, what we certainly don't expect to see is Jesus amazed at someone's faith in him. After all, if we believe the Bible is, as Tolkien said, the true myth, Jesus is God and nothing catches him off guard or surprises him. But in Jesus' human nature, we read this morning of a man who Luke writes, Jesus marveled at because of his faith. He was amazed. He was astonished. He was amazed at this man's assurance of what he had hoped for and the conviction that Jesus could do something that was not seen but only heard. It's a wonderful picture of true Christian faith that Jesus has been calling the disciples to all along. And it's now manifest in a Gentile Roman soldier. But before we look at the centurion's faith in Christ, let's see what the setting is. Begin in verse 1 of Luke chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. 
Now remember, in general, Luke is not writing chronologically through the, the gospel. But he's grouping things together as he writes to form a collection of thought or teaching in a more systematic fashion. But every once in a while, we do see chronological language, and this is one such place. Now remember, Jesus is still in the region of Galilee, and now Luke tells us he enters into the city of Capernaum after finishing. We just completed uh, looking a few weeks ago at the Sermon on the Plain. And the reason I point this out is because the chronology is important here. Remember what Jesus was preaching in the Sermon on the Plain. The end of his sermon specifically was focused on what unwavering faith built on a firm foundation looks like. Faith that does not buckle, faith that does not crumble, and faith that produces good fruit. So now, immediately after delivering his sermon, Jesus walks into Capernaum, and wouldn't you know it, a prize example of the very faith that he's been describing is here. And of course, in proper fashion for Jesus, it's not an example of self-righteous religious leaders who sought to uphold all of the externals of the law, but instead someone quite different, a Roman Gentile military commander. Now, a centurion was a Roman military officer who commanded a century of soldiers, 100 men. The modern-day army equivalent would be something like a captain who would be a company commander. So the centurions, often called the backbone of the army, were responsible for keeping discipline, for inspections, uh, for commanding the sentry in both camp and in the field, and for the command of all the auxiliaries. He would be well respected. He carried a great deal of responsibility on his shoulders. And given that he was probably detached from the larger uh, unit he was responsible to, he was most likely the highest ranking man in Capernaum. So we have a Roman military commander in Capernaum with a sick servant who was soon to die. And the centurion thought very highly of him. Let's continue reading in verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now having heard of Jesus and no doubt the many miracles he had performed, the centurion sent Jewish elders to ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. Now, these would have been leaders of the local Jewish community, not members of the Jerusalem Sanhedrin, the Pharisees or the Sadducees. So we see right away several things about the centurion here. First, we already get a glimpse of the centurion's faith. Now, skeptics often reject any claims of faith, saying that it's just a leap in the dark. But true Christian faith, as we see in the centurion is a belief based upon the sufficiency of evidence. Most people don't go to a doctor and reject the treatment that is prescribed because they personally have never seen it 
work as it is supposed to. Likewise, the centurion may have never actually seen Jesus lay his hands on a leper to heal them, but he certainly heard about it many times. So he believed it could be done. And likewise today, we can have the same assurance in Jesus' life and work, knowing that it has been attested to thousands of times by thousands of eyewitnesses, many of whom were willing to die and did die to defend the truth of who Jesus is. Now, obviously, it wasn't the norm for a centurion to believe that a traveling Jewish rabbi could heal someone. But the centurion believed that Jesus was who he heard him to be and trusted that he was able to make his servant well. The second thing we see about the centurion here is the kindness of the centurion. There's no doubt that he had a heart of grace and love. You know, Jewish elders weren't much for running their own errands, let alone the errands of a Gentile Roman centurion in an occupying army. But notice, the Jews weren't unwilling or unwanting to do this for the centurion. They didn't go to Jesus reluctantly, but verse 4 tells us they pled with Jesus earnestly, expressing a heartfelt desire to serve this man. The kindness of the centurion is shown here at least two ways. The first way is toward his servant. I don't get the sense from verse 2 that the servant was highly valued by the centurion simply because he was a hard worker or a valuable asset to, to do what he was seeking to accomplish. That certainly could be the case, of course. But given the overall picture of the centurion that Luke draws out for us, I think we can safely conclude that he had a genuine concern for the health and well-being of his fellow man. Now, of course, when we think of a servant, we often think of cruel abuses, inhumane treatment that often comes along with a system of, of slavery and servanthood. But such things were not necessarily so in every instance. And in this case, it's certainly not that the servant was, uh, was not uh, well cared for and loved. He very obviously was. In fact, I, I think it could be said that the centurion considered the servant to be his friend. And in his kindness, he desired to see him made well. Secondly, we see the kindness of the centurion toward Israel. Notice what the elders say to Jesus in verse 5. He loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So first they say, he loves our nation. Here's the fact about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. They didn't love each other. They didn't even like each other. They generally hated each other. They despised one another. But not so with the centurion. He is said to have loved the nation. And the elders showed their thankfulness in running his errand. They also said he, he built our synagogue. Now, Rome generally supported religious belief because in their minds it led to stability and a more manageable control of the local people. 
So despite the rivalry between Jews and Gentiles, the giving of contributions by Gentiles to support the Jewish synagogues is well attested historically. But notice the elders don't say he contributed to our building fund. No, it says he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now that was unusual and obviously quite endearing to the Jews. So it's obvious to us that the centurion has a reasonable faith and a great love for others, no matter the cultural norms and statuses. He was completely out of step with his pagan upbringing, nowhere near being conformed to the Roman way of life in relationship to others. We can only conclude that it was by the grace of God that the Spirit had opened the eyes of his heart to see rightly. In the first century, he would have been referred to as a God-fearer. While he did not officially become a Jewish proselyte, he accepted the God of Judaism by faith. J.C. Ryle comments, His knowledge of divine things, no doubt, was very dim. His religious views were probably built on a very imperfect acquaintance with the Old Testament scriptures. But whatever light from above he had... It influenced his life, and one result of it was the kindness which is recorded in this passage. And I assume this would have gotten Jesus' attention when hearing about this man. What an unusual situation. But notice how the Jewish elders framed it in verse 4. He is worthy to have you do this for him. Oh, how little they understood who they were talking to and what worthiness truly looks like. The Jewish people were so conditioned to assume that external deeds of righteousness were their grounds for worthiness. Surely they assumed that Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, would hear of the centurion's external deeds and be impressed. Surely it's about what he has done that gives him worth. But I think Jesus would have phrased it much differently. He is humble and meek and godly. The Jews praised the centurion because of the works he had done that they assumed would earn him heaven. They assumed the centurion lived dependent upon himself and his own works in the very same way that all of them did. And how often do we see this in our day, right? Nine times out of ten, when you ask a sinner why they're going to heaven when they die, what is their answer? Well, I think I'm a pretty good person. And then we're given a list of good deeds. I helped build a church. I donated all the chairs. I gathered donors to contribute to the fund, and my name is at the top of the donor list. Friends, it doesn't matter if you build the most beautiful church building in the history of mankind. It might as well be the most vile chicken coop. God is not impressed with your works. No matter what sinful man does, the Apostle Paul reminds us, whatever is not from faith is sin. All the humanitarian, philanthropic deeds of man 
are a dead end without Christ because they are deeds performed within the context of a lie. It's the lie that says, the act I am now doing is a good thing. And let's admit, it might very well be a good thing. But it comes to the point where it is said that it is sufficient in itself to meet my needs because, you name it, because it helps other people. Because there's no God and I have to do my part. Or because it makes up for my other bad deeds. There are a thousand distortions of the truth which sin brings into the human heart. So that Jeremiah cries out, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The deceitfulness of sin so easily leads us to assume that our own deeds are worthy of God's reward. We've so frequently believed that our our works are God's means of justifying us when they really only amount to a pile of filthy rags before him. The man who depends upon his own works, the man who depends upon being a good person for his justification before God is a man who falls woefully short of what God requires. God doesn't require loving a nation or building a beautiful building. He requires perfection. And only one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life in obedience to all that God had commanded. So he is the only reasonable hope we have to receive favor from God. He lived the life I could not live. He died the death that I deserve. And he has given to me his standing before the Father a standing of righteousness, justified, acquitted, redeemed. So my works are only a means to work out the salvation that has already come to rest upon me by the sovereign grace of God through Jesus Christ out of thankful obedience to him. Now, while the Jews obviously thought very highly of this centurion man, Let's consider his own assessment of himself as he responds to the arrival of Jesus. It is quite different. Look, beginning in verse 6. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. Now notice the centurion doesn't even go out to greet Jesus, but he sends friends out with his message, similar to what he did in sending the Jewish elders. While he didn't likely understand all that was to be known about who Jesus was, he obviously understood something of his uniqueness at the very least. Now look first, in his message to Jesus, the centurion addresses him as Lord. Now in this case, he's most likely addressing Jesus as Lord in the way that we uh, do um, 
that not in the way that we do as we worship him as our Lord, but rather in the sense of recognizing him as one with power and authority, one to whom respect is to be given. It's a term that would be used to indicate that someone has rank over others, similar to those in the military calling a superior officer, sir, or a senior enlisted man by their rank. Now, this is not to say that Centurion didn't have some sense of Jesus' divinity given the way he is acting toward him. But at the very least, he understood Jesus to be a man with power and authority over sickness and disease. So he says, Sir, I am not worthy to be in your presence. You have great power. You have great authority. I am not worthy to have you under my roof. Consider it. A centurion soldier, a hundred men who report to him and do whatever he pleases, recognizes his own condition. He sees himself as he truly is, unworthy. He has a wholesome consciousness of his flesh, of his own sin. He's not puffed up with pride. He certainly does not agree with the Jewish elders' assessment of him that he is worthy. No, he says quite the opposite. He says, I am not worthy. This is not a self-righteous man at all. This is not a man who sees authority as something that he can use in a manner that benefits himself the greatest. Indeed, his love for his servant and his humility before Jesus goes to show that this man epitomizes a servant leadership full of grace. And he acknowledges just how great he sees Jesus' authority to be. I have authority too. I know what happens when I just say the word and want something to happen. You too have authority. So just say the word and let my servant be healed. You say true faith realizes that God can heal apart from rituals, special ointments, the touch of a hand, or monetary gifts to the healer. The centurion recognizes that all Jesus needed to do was say the word and it would be done. As a man who acted under the authority of the Roman government, he recognized that Jesus was acting with an even higher authority. And the centurion had great faith in Jesus, and his faith was absolute. His faith was unlimited. Even a single word from the Lord spoken at a distance could heal his servant, for the Spirit of the Lord was present with Jesus to heal. Now, no doubt, Luke, in writing this gospel to Theophilus, as well as for the church today, he desires that we would have such faith. To have an assurance of things hoped for, to have a conviction of things not seen, a living, bold trust in the promises of God, so certain of his existence, so certain of his power and his authority and his goodness and his grace, that we're willing to put it all on the line to look like fools because we depend upon what God has given to us in his word as absolutely reliable and true. We don't have a blind faith That's not real faith. 
But faith in what God says and what God promises, knowing that what God promises is faithful and true, knowing that God will do what he says he will do. Because we've seen in the lives of many, to include ourselves, that God does what he says he will do. The centurion's faith is in Jesus' power and authority. He has an unquestionable assurance of Jesus' ability to do what he hopes. So what is Jesus' response? Look at verses 9 and 10. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Luke writes that Jesus marveled at this man's faith. Another way to say that is Jesus was amazed at the centurion's faith. You know, the only other time in the scriptures when Jesus was said to be amazed was at the hardness of unbelief in the people at Nazareth. What could be more terrible than to amaze the Son of God with your lack of faith? Oh, but what could be more wonderful than to amaze Him with your faith? The centurion had amazing faith. Think of it. The man had never met Jesus, probably never heard Him teach, And yet he had heard of his great work and had amazing faith that caused him to call on Jewish elders and other friends to approach Jesus to see if he would respond to his appeal to heal his servant. This is the man who was the least likely person to have faith. He was like a lot of us in the eyes of those who knew us before Jesus saved us. He was not expected to be a believer. He was an uncircumcised Gentile. He was raised without the benefits of the covenant. He didn't have the glorious synagogue tradition in his life. He didn't know the scriptures. He was a soldier. He was an instrument of the oppressive pagan establishment. He was an officer and wielded great power. He was obviously rich and could have depended very easily upon his wealth, but instead he expressed a very simple faith. Say the word and let my servant be healed. He hadn't studied the scriptures. He wasn't living his life with the expectancy of the Messiah, and yet he recognized that Jesus was acting with the authority of God. And this Roman Gentile saw Christ's invisible spiritual power and he saw his servant as being made whole by Christ's word. It's amazing. His faith was like that of Noah and Abraham and Moses. And you know, this story reminds us that faith in Christ is a gift from God. We don't have faith because of our families or our connections or our worthiness. Our faith comes to us because of God's kindness and grace toward us. This was the ultimate explanation for the man's faith. He came to see Jesus as who he is because of God by his spirit. 
in connection with his word, revealing it to him. And notice what Jesus says of the centurion's faith. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This is a, a remarkable theological assertion. Remember that Luke is writing to Gentiles specifically. And in this context, Jesus commends a Gentile military officer for his faith. What's being made all the more obvious is that faith, not national origin or privileged standing, is the key to the kingdom of God. So while the Jews were depending on their national identity, while they assumed that their standing with God was secure because they were children of Abraham in the flesh, Jesus' words must have had a tremendously humbling effect. All of you who think your Jewishness has brought you salvation, I tell you, look at this Gentile man. He has true faith. And we have a glimpse into what the Apostle Paul made so clear to the Gentiles. Uh, Excuse me, the Galatians. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In the centurion, we see true Christian faith. It's an exercise in reality. It's seeing clearly that which is unseen. The two essential components of Christian faith come to life in the centurion, knowing who Christ is and knowing who we are. Do you know who and what you are? Do you know and believe truly that you are unworthy? Do you know that all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags? But even more important, do you know who Jesus is? Do you see yourself as deserving of Christ's grace, as the elders saw the centurion? Do you inwardly think that because you are a lover of the church and even more a giver of your money, you are worthy of God's care? Have you secretly internalized others' good opinions of you so that despite the persistent teaching of God's word that salvation comes through faith and is only a gift of God, you imagine that you will somehow make it into the kingdom by your personal virtue? Do you see Christians who regularly and sometimes flippantly talk about their salvation but do not measure up in their walk? And then reason that because your life is better than theirs, you certainly will make it to heaven. Perhaps it's our good theology or the books that we've read that we assumed we're saved by. But if so, we're not seeing reality. We must face the truth. Apart from the grace of God, our hearts are desperately evil. Self is at the center of our universe and therefore darkness reigns within. The reality is that we, like the centurion, are not worthy because nobody is. All of our acts of supposed righteousness will not cut it with God. Our only hope is the love and grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, do you see Jesus for who he is? Is he your God? 
Is he to you the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation? For by him all things were created, (coughs) things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things created by him and for him, before all things and in him all things holding together, the head of the body, the church the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Is this how you see him? Do you see Jesus as your Savior? Do you see Jesus as your only hope? You see, biblical faith is an exercise in reality, truly seeing Jesus for whom he really is, and seeing yourself as you truly are. Do you see the great reality that God the Father in his infinite kindness and love made an eternal covenant with the Son, making him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God? Is your faith in this great promise? Is your hope in this great reality? If so, then you see with the eyes of faith and your faith is genuine and true and saving. If not, I commend to you Jesus Christ, the great Savior of sinners and the great hope of the world. Plead with God that he would give us a faith that is amazing, a faith that if brought before Jesus, that he would marvel at, not because he's impressed with us, but because he has given us the great gift that we can rest assuredly on his promises for our good. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great gift of faith that is ours if we are in Christ Jesus. We thank you, God, that you have seen fit by your grace and for your glory to call your people into the great light of Christ, that we can live faithful lives, not depending on our works, not depending on our deeds, not depending on our supposed worthiness, but that we can come and make an honest assessment of our own hearts and our own lives and recognize our complete unworthiness in light of your great holiness. And yet, Lord, seeing that you require of us that we recognize our condition and that we recognize who Jesus is. Thank you, O God, for not leaving us to be dependent upon ourselves, but for giving us Jesus that we can be fully dependent upon him who who is our only access to the great throne room of heaven And so we pray, God, that you would give us a great, amazing faith, a greater assurance in all of your promises, that we would delight in you all the more, and that through us you would be glorified, and that people would have reason to ask of the hope that dwells within us, and that we would be faithful to say, it is Jesus and Jesus alone. 
Lord, for any who are here today who are not resting and depending upon Jesus, I pray, God, that you would make known to them their sinful condition and great need for the Savior. Rescue them from themselves that they might delight in the holiness of of your goodness and grace toward us in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We love you. We thank you. And we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.